ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan on Gadigal Land. And me, Tegan Taylor on Jagera and Turrbal Land. Today, cochlear implants can be life-changing for people with hearing loss. So where's the technology at? Well, can't wait to find out. And the impact of around four minutes a day of intermittent, vigorous physical activity for maybe only a minute or two at a time. A radical rethink of a condition that profoundly affects one in eight women and has a completely misleading name. But first, Norman, we're talking a bit about physical activity today, and I don't want anyone to think that we don't put our money where our mouths are. No, in the age-old tradition of us experimenting on ourselves, we submitted to be part of an experiment ourselves. Yes, recently-ish. It all started about eight months ago in a mountain hut in the depths of the Tasmanian Central Highlands. So, Tegan, I've heard of sacrifice for (laughs) broadcasting, but this is getting ridiculous. I'd just really like to challenge you professionally, Norman. So for backstory for people who are listening, earlier today I gave Norman a kind of daggy-looking not-Apple watch and told him to put it on his wrist, and now we're halfway up Cradle Mountain in Tasmania. And basically these things that we've got on our accelerometers, they're meant to measure... Well, we'll actually get an expert to explain that. And since I haven't died yet, mine's still working. Which obviously means you're not working hard enough, Norman. Yeah. So we're going to analyse a week of our activity? Yes, so this is really setting the standard quite high for ourselves because I don't plan to climb a mountain every day, but it'll capture the days that we're really active. I want you to wear it to the gym because apparently you go there and work out. I want to know if you're actually working as hard as you tell everyone you are. And I'm going to wear it rock climbing. And the hypothesis is we're not burning as much as we think we are. Yeah, (laughs) the hypothesis is that people actually don't ever work out as vigorously as they think they do. What that means for what we do without physical activity, well, again, we'll let an expert answer that one. So when I felt I was dying going up to Marion's Peak, I probably wasn't. No, you weren't even working close to hard enough. (laughs) That's right, we wore accelerometers for a week, supplied very kindly by Professor Wendy Brown at the University of Queensland. And she took that data and crunched it to show how much physical activity you and me were actually doing that week, Norman, compared to what we noted down in our activity diaries. And And what did it show? Well, unlike what we were saying back then, it turns out that these devices show that we might actually be doing more physical activity than we noted down. You know, the kind of times where you might run for the bus or be playing with the kids, you might not write those things down, and that all those little minutes at that high-level acceleration add up. So all the way up Cradle Mountain for nothing. <laughs> so that does, um, that does fit with emerging research that we'll be talking about quite soon on the show. But, you know, I'm not competitive, Tegan, but how did you and I compare with each other? I can't believe you'd even ask me, Norman. Clearly, oh. I, clearly I dominate it. You, you say that you go to the gym a lot, but actually the data bears it out that um, the intermittent incidental activity, I don't know what I actually do all day, but definitely around lunchtime and late afternoon on each of those days that week, had some big short spikes on my accelerometer charts, but yours was a bit flatter overall. You were just worried they were going to run out of of food and uh, almond croissants towards the end of the day. (laughs) Exactly. Anyway, on with the show. We'll come back to that later, as you'll find out. This week, a new guideline emerges, which has been approved for doctors and women on a much misunderstood, not to mention misnamed condition called polycystic ovary syndrome. PCOS has profound metabolic effects on as many as one in eight women, raising the risk of infertility, male pattern hair growth, diabetes, heart disease, cancer of the uterus, as well as weight gain, which can be hard to shift. 
Helena Teed is Professor of Women's Health at Monash University and one of the people leading the new guidance on PCOS, which brings together the latest scientific evidence. Welcome back to The Health Report, Helena. Thanks very much, Norman. To what extent is PCOS misnamed? Dreadfully so. It's not a disease of the ovaries and there are no cysts. It really reflects a, a very poor historical misunderstanding of this fairly complex and broad condition. So what is the condition? What do we know? So it's genetic and the genes that are, um, that are affected are both reproductive and metabolic genes and then it's exacerbated by lifestyle. It's easier to gain weight but then weight gain also exacerbates the condition. And to what extent is it underdiagnosed? Uh, very much so. So we know in Australia that it can take up to two years to get a diagnosis and often women will have to see two or three health professionals before they get diagnosed. And for many, that diagnosis just doesn't occur until it's too late. How does a woman know she's got it? Yeah, so we spend a lot of time in the translation tools talking about this. Um, it's usually diagnosed after girls start getting their period, so in their adolescence, when their cycles are irregular. That's because the eggs um, develop in the ovaries but just don't get released each month, mainly because of the hormone changes. They're just sitting in a, a chemical hormone environment and they just don't behave normally. When that doesn't, don't get their regular periods. So that's an important thing. The other thing thing we notice is that uh, their body shape is changing. It's more abdominal or tummy fat, so more round than pear-shaped. And they also have excess uh, facial hair and body hair that starts to develop. And those two features together are the most important in adolescence. Once they become adults, there's a third category um, of symptoms that helps make the diagnosis, which is where they can have those half-developed eggs that appear on ultrasound. That's why they're mistakenly called cysts. And it's a combination of those factors, the high male hormones and hair growth, the irregular cycles, and then those changes on ultrasound for adults only that make the diagnosis. Is it then a syndrome that you add up all these symptoms together and you come to the conclusion it's PCOS or whatever new name you want to give it, um, or is there a blood test you can do? I wish there was a single blood test you can do. The new guideline does emphasise that women no longer need to have an ultrasound, which because that is usually done by a probe through um, intern internally through the vagina, it's actually um, costly and inconvenient. And now there is a blood test that can substitute that component of the diagnosis, but there is no one simple blood test. It is, in fact, as you say, a syndrome, which makes the experience unique for every woman and also changes over the lifespan within a woman. And the, talking about lifespan, one of the one of the things you emphasise in this guideline is because the focus has been on younger women and infertility, um, this is a lifelong condition. Yes, and in fact, I, you know, I have many patients who I care for who develop diabetes before they're twenty, and if if this is not recognised, then that they have PCOS, then they're never tested. So we know that they have diabetes early onset, they have earlier onset of heart disease, and very much underappreciated, whilst they have infertility. We can treat it quite effectively, often relatively simple, simply, Norman. Not many of them need IVF. They often just need tablets. But when they get pregnant, PCOS is a high-risk condition. And yet we know in clinical practice it's rarely recorded. It's not asked for on history. And therefore, we're not monitoring and focusing on prevention of the significant complications that occur in this condition during pregnancy. And then after menopause, they have problems with diabetes and heart disease. And one of the things you emphasise in the guideline is that sometimes 
overly expensive therapies are needlessly sold to these women, like IVF, when in fact yes. what they need is ovarian stimulation rather than in vitro fertilisation. Exactly. And it's really important, therefore, that women know what their options are. And so uh, there's a, an app that's currently used, we've developed from the, the last guidelines, significantly updated now, called Ask PCOS, which is already used by about 50,000 women in 196 countries. And it actually empowers women to understand how to, what they need to look for for the diagnosis, how to work with their health professionals, all the different features of the condition and the causes, and also empowers them to know about the treatments and the first line for fertility, for example, as you say, is actually um, oral tablets that are not particularly expensive. They have fairly limited side effect profile and they're very effective. And very few women with PCOS, if it's only PCOS is the cause of infertility, actually need expensive and invasive IVF. Now, one of the things we haven't spoken about are the psychological effects of PCOS, which are considerable from the stigma about body shape um, to things like masculinized uh, hair pattern. Yes. So basically the psychological effects, around about 70 to 80% of these young, especially when they're younger, young women have depressive and anxiety symptoms. They have impact on their body image. They have impact on self-esteem with um, the propensity to gain weight. They often have disordered eating. And if they don't have a diagnosis and they don't have information and support, it's really quite distressing, which is why diagnosis actually becomes therapy. If you know what's wrong, that there's something wrong, you can do something about it. It's incredibly important because you don't just feel different to everyone else. You know what's going on. And this is what we see with endometriosis, with other conditions. Just knowing what is wrong makes a really big difference and then also helps you to know how to treat it. But there are some treatments, particularly cosmetic treatments, which will make women feel better, but they're not available in the MBS, whereas they are for other conditions. Yes, that's a bit of a bugbear of mine. So we know that excess hair growth, is, a, especially facial hair, is a really distressing medical feature of this condition. And yet laser therapy, which is effective not only to treat that hair growth, but actually to improve quality of life and mood and well-being. And yet for women with PCOS, it's not available. Whereas for uh, patients who have transgender, for example, it is and it's subsidised, but it's not for women with PCOS. And that needs to be rectified. Yeah, it's not that we're criticising it for availability for transgender. It's that it's not available there. So then briefly, just take us through prevention through what we know works with treatment. You've talked about IVF. Um, the oral contraceptive pill is a key part of treatment, is it not? Yes, and often on social media, there's a lot of misinformation about the, the combined oral contraceptive pill, which is actually incredibly effective in this condition because it really gets to the heart and the cause of the hormonal imbalance. So the combined pill is very useful. Metformin, which has been around for 100 years, is actually also quite effective in this condition. And then there are a range of therapies for, um, for infertility. Inositol is promoted heavily on social media. It is, with almost no evidence. So when I say no evidence, I should clarify that. There are a lot of studies on inositol. They do not show clinical benefit. They show some changes in hormone levels, but little to no clinical benefit. And women pay an extraordinary amount of money for something that is actually proven not to be effective and is less effective than metformin. So it's fine if women want to use these agents, but really important they understand what the evidence shows. What about these relatively new um, anti-diabetic drugs, but they also cause weight loss and they're now being promoted for weight loss? Uh, one is called semaglutide. The generic term is GLP-1 agonists. Um, is there a role for these drugs in um, PCOS? 
Almost certainly, Norman. And, and over the last week, um, there's been a, a large study um, result that's been released showing that that particular agent actually reduced cardiovascular disease by 20% in people who did not have diabetes and only had excess weight. Oh, but they did so have it, heart disease. Yes, but it is it is strengthening the fact that there may be an increased role for these agents. However, important to say, there is not a lot of direct evidence in PCOS, so we recommend going on population broad guidelines for the medications and all the caveats and risks and benefits apply. And with these medications, there's also no evidence around risks in pregnancy. So while people are taking these medications, it's important to be on contraception and it's very important to be well-informed with your doctor before you consider starting these. Their safety. Now, last time we spoke about this on air, you spoke about fairly intense exercise and its role in controlling PCOS. Yes. So the thing about PCOS is that exercise and activity, as well as healthy diet, emphasis on healthy diet, there is no miracle cure, there is no hormone balanced diet and anyone who suggests there is is trying to make money out of something that's, um, that's not appropriate. So healthy lifestyle is important right from the start with an emphasis on preventing further excess weight gain and being healthy. We do know now, Norman, that really um, for those women who have struggled a great deal with their weight and remembering 70% of the Australian populace is overweight, that this is not an individual behavioural challenge. This is not just about the individual woman uh, not managing to control their behaviour and being, it being their fault. We know this is a policy environment, a much, much broader issue. So it's important that we are careful about weight stigma, that we support and don't judge. And for us, the emphasis in the guideline is on lifestyle for health and lifestyle for prevention of weight gain right from the early diagnosis and then additional support if needed when you've got significant weight loss, if that's the goal. And very briefly, where can women go for more information? So the Ask PCOS app is available free. It has multiple um, languages. It has extensive information designed with women, for women. It's already used in 196 countries and we do encourage women to use it and it also has a chat forum and all the information that's important is there. Also, if you look at Monash PCOS, you'll find the guidelines and a whole range of fact sheets, both for health professionals and for women. Helena, thank you. Thank you so much, Norman. Helena Teed is Professor of Women's Health at Monash University, and you're with The Health Report. Let's get back to exercise, because there's a growing body of evidence that short bursts of vigorous exercise can have significant metabolic effects on the body. But I'm not talking about high-intensity interval training, HIT. New research from the Charles Perkins Centre in Sydney has found that microbursts of vigorous incidental physical activity in people who don't exercise at all can decrease the risk of developing cancers. It follows another study a few months ago showing a reduction in premature death rates from both cancer and heart disease. The lead researcher was and is Professor Emmanuel Stamatakis. Welcome back to the Health Report, Emmanuel. Nice to be back, uh, Norman. Thanks for having me. Now, just this is... Uh, a study actually in Britain of large numbers of people, thousands of people who've been tracked intensively for their health and were wearing accelerometers. So you could analyse their physical activity down to almost a minute at a time. 10 seconds at a time, actually. The resolution we used for this analysis, it was 10 seconds. And the reason why we did this is because uh, high-intensity activity during daily living happens in very, very short bursts. We saw that uh, approximately 93 94% of all bouts that uh, vigorous intensity activity recorded in this study were lasted up to one minute. 
So it's very important that in studies uh, like this, we go down to very high resolution, very short time window, so that we can uh, detect these very short bursts. So we'll come to the results in a minute where you compare these short bursts to their cancer incidence rates. But these these were people who actually weren't going to the gym or doing regular exercise. They were relatively sedentary. What were they doing in these bouts? Do we know or you just recorded the fact that they were... You know, their heart rate went and their movement went up for a minute. Yeah, we haven't got to the point to identify with a high degree of accuracy the type of physical activity from the accelerometer, uh, but uh, we could detect the, the intensity. The intensity, yeah, we use a validated method. Um, it's important to highlight that, yes, this was a sample of non-exercisers, people who were not doing uh, exercise, structure exercise in their leisure time, and they were not even going for recreational walks. But the relevance of these results, it's exactly the, the selection of the, 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 the reason why we selected the sample. 80% of the adult population, between 75 and 85 actually, percent in any country I have seen statistics from, including Australia, US, UK, 80, 75 to 85%, they are not regular exercisers. Uh, so, because there are so many barriers to, to to structure exercise, so these results are very relevant for the large majority of the adult population who are at risk at uh, non-communicable disease, including cancer. So you could speculate that it's a rush to get from the car to the front door, or it's um, you're walking very briskly to the supermarket, or you're chasing your grandchild. Most activities captured, uh, recorded as uh, VILPA, Vigorous Intermittent Lifestyle Physical Activity, as we call it, were walking-based, mostly walking-based, because this is, at this point in time, the algorithms we have are very good at detecting uh, walking-based activity. But our study proves a principle, really, and the principle is that uh, if we increase the the intensity of day-to-day activities, including activities like uh, playing energetically with kids, carrying the shopping to uh, the car instead of using the trolley, uh, walking up the stairs, and anything that makes us half and puff, it's very likely that would have. Um, uh, it's very like our, our results at least point towards a very promising direction uh, in terms of the value of this activity for preventing uh, chronic disease and potentially some cancers as well. So what you showed six or so months ago in, uh, in Nature Medicine was um, a 20 or 30% reduction in the chances of dying prematurely for heart disease and cancer and a similar dimension of the prevention of the incidence of cancers in total, but also particularly cancers that are known to be physical activity sensitive like breast, colon um, and uterine cancer, cancer of the uterus. What's the mechanism here? What, given that we've been told again and again, 45 minutes on most days of the week, aerobic and muscle strengthening, and now we're finding short bursts, mm-hmm. what's the mechanism possible here that could have such a profound effect on both the chances of dying of cancer and heart disease and developing cancer in the first place? Uh, yeah, the study in uh, last December, the effects on cardiovascular mortality were even larger. We're in the region of 40 to 50 percent reduction in risk of cardiovascular, of deaths from car- cardiovascular causes. Uh, 
in trying to answer your question, it's important to highlight that these are observational studies. They were not designed to understand mechanisms. These studies were designed to observe with accuracy a phenomenon and potentially tease out a potentially causal um, uh, association. Uh, however, there are plausible, uh, biologically plausible mechanisms when it comes to high-intensity activity in general and cancer. And I would, I, would, I would think that the most plausible pathways involve improvements of vigorous intense activity has the very well-established capacity to cause uh, rapid improvements in uh, cardiorespiratory fitness, what we call aerobic fitness. Uh, improvements or maintenance if regular activity, regular vigorous activity is performed as we age, as we go through middle age, the, it, it can maintain our cardiorespiratory capacity. Now, cardiorespiratory capacity, there's another body of li literature that links cardiorespiratory capacity with insulin improvements in insulin sensitivity and reductions in, in, stem, in systemic inflammation, both of which are major risk factors for cancer. And it should be said, Emmanuel, that the, uh, the amount per day that added up from these short bursts was between three and a half and four and a half minutes a day to get the effect. Look, uh, Emmanuel, we look forward to the next results from this, these further studies. Uh, it's going to be about cardiovascular disease, and they're very exciting results. Again, very surprising in a way, but very exciting. Your, your invitation <laughs> from the health report stays open. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Professor Emmanuel Stamatakis is at the Charles Persons Perkins Centre at the University of Sydney. And I think we did more than four minutes on that day on Cradle Norman. We did. Just one, one or two minutes more. My knee felt it. <laughs> oh, I forgot to say at the start of the show, happy Science Week. Yes, indeed. And we've got special themes for Science Week this year. Yes, indeed. The, sound is, the theme is sound and noise, which, of course, relies on a sense that many of us take for granted, hearing. So today, a little look into the latest on cochlear implants, how access to the technology has shifted in recent decades and where they could be heading next. So I was feeling really, really calm until I actually got to the hospital and I started getting quite nervous. But I do remember when I laid on the bed getting ready to go into the operation room. I was so nervous, just like one side of my body was shaking. Don't know why it was just one side, but it was actually just shaking. <laughs> but yeah, once the surgery started, because they obviously put you to sleep, and I woke up and felt like I had the best nap ever. <laughs> <laughs> this is Jay Denny. She lost most of her hearing as a baby. I had meningitis when I was three months, and the medication that had to be used to basically save my life unfortunately were toxic to the ear, so it damaged a lot of my hearing. So I got my first hearing aid when I was about 10 months old, I think, and I had an amazing paediatric audiologist, and he was the one that actually inspired me to become an audiologist myself. After a lifetime of normal hearing aids doing the job, a couple of years ago, Jay's hearing began to deteriorate further. And my audiologist at the time recommended a cochlear implant. And it was recommended when I was really young, but technology was a lot different back then, so it wasn't quite an advanced. And there was a lot more risks associated. My hearing had dropped quite significantly, and I basically didn't have much hearing in my right ear in particular. So, yeah, I just thought, may as well see how it goes. 
While a hearing aid amplifies the sound your ears are picking up, a cochlear implant transmits sound signals directly to your brain through a device implanted in the cochlea, in your inner ear. They were first developed in the 1950s and 60s and were initially for adults. But these days, it's kids who have the best coverage. It's given us the opportunity to provide implants for those that will benefit from it as young as six months of age. This is Jamie Lee. And I'm a senior audiologist at the Royal Victorian Eye and Ear Hospital in Melbourne. Jamie says Australia's newborn hearing screening program means 90% of kids who could benefit from a cochlear implant get one. And that places these very young children in a very good position to develop their oral speech and language at a rate that's equivalent to their hearing peers so that ideally we have them entering primary school with equivalent language skills to their peers so that they can then progress through their education and and well beyond with as much potential as a hearing peer. So that's been really exciting in the paediatric space. But on the flip side, only about 10% of adults who could benefit get a cochlear implant. And it's in this group that Jamie's really trying to shift the needle. So there's some really exciting emerging research globally, but particularly coming out of the University of Melbourne, which is being able to demonstrate that having a cochlear implant may actually reduce or stabilise somebody's risk of cognitive decline. So it's giving us some really good, strong evidence that we should be intervening with hearing loss as soon as possible, but not ever considering anyone as being too old to potentially benefit from a cochlear implant or other ways of remediating their hearing. Jamie helped develop and establish the Victorian Cochlear Implant Program, which aims to link audiology providers in regional parts of Victoria with the centralised hospital system. It's making a difference, especially with those older patients, some quite old indeed. The oldest person we've implanted in Victoria was 98 at the time she received her implant and and, and now to get great, great benefit from that. So yes, never too old. She's a very healthy 98 years of age and the benefit that that was able to provide her is just quite incredible when you think of that risk of isolation for someone who is in that sort of older age bracket who may be, you know, heavily dependent on family members for socialisation and you know, getting outside of the homes. There's still plenty of room to improve with cochlear implants. The sound they give isn't what a person with normal hearing would hear. They're okay with speech, but don't translate pitch well. If you imagine that the cochlea is like a piano and uh, our current method of stimulation is relatively blunt, it's like Mm. playing a piano with boxing gloves on. (laughs) And so if we can take the boxing gloves off and get more focused stimulation of the nerves within the cochlea, then it might be more like playing the piano keyboard with your fingers. This is Rob Briggs, an otolaryngologist also at the Eye and Ear Hospital. Rob is part of a trial currently underway looking at a new device that can give this more focused stimulation. The implants themselves are also continuing to get smaller and more streamlined. And I think in the next five to ten years, we would hopefully have fully implantable devices so that it'd be an internal microphone and an internal uh, battery so that recipients can hear without having to wear an external device for at least part of the time. But even at the current level of cochlear implant technology, Jay is happy with her own result. And as a graduate audiologist, she's also looking forward to her own experience 
informing her practice. While it's a really scary experience, for me it has been worth it. It's great. It's been a great experience. Recent audiology graduate and cochlear implant recipient Jay Denny finishing us off there. You also heard from Dr Jamie Lee and Professor Rob Briggs, both from the Royal Victorian Eye and Ear Hospital. And of course, if you want to share the health report with someone who's hard of hearing, we have transcripts available on our website. And for Science Week, we have all sorts of surveys and things going on about, you know, favourite noises in the environment and things like that. And I don't know how you actually get to them. Do you know how you get to them? I think you might be able to go to abc.net.au slash news slash science. Oh, you're always on top of the, these modern newfangled technologies. <laughs> Meantime, we will see you next week. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.